Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this latest broadcast from the IEA London YouTube channel with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. And we've got a treat for you on this broadcast because we're going to be working through exactly what people on the other side of the pond are making about unfolding events in the moment and what this might mean for our most important ally when it comes to the midterm elections and indeed a presidential election which isn't too far away. What should free marketeers make of what's happening? Well, to pick through all of the bones of this is my very good friend, Patrick Basham, the director of the Democracy Institute, a best-selling author, media pundit, pollster, lecturer, consultant. He focuses on political and cultural trends, economic regulation, cryptocurrency, and public health issues. Not a jack of all trades, a master of all trades. Patrick, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Mark. Thank you for the overly generous introduction, but it's appreciated nonetheless. Now, I'm fascinated by the polling that you've just been uh, conducted. Uh, um, You've done interviews with 1,500 likely American voters uh, across the political uh, spectrum. I think of your sample, about 36% were Democrat registered voters, 34% Republican and 30% Independent. Patrick, I want you to talk through what you found. I'm fascinated by, by this, but I'm always going to be looking for the ideas behind it, the policy behind it, the, uh, what, what can free marketeers in particular learn from what's happening. So pick out the, the, the key headline findings from your poll, and we'll, we'll, we'll link to the poll, of course, in the, in the show notes below. You know, the headline is that Biden is doing uh, very badly in terms of popular opinion, public opinion, as are his Democrats. And those two things are are overlapping. So at the moment, it looks very bad for the Democrats in terms of November's midterm elections. Uh, Part of that is Biden. Part of that is the Democrats themselves, what they have and haven't done in the last 15 months uh, leading Congress. And it also looks at the moment rough, rough sledding for the Democrats. If you look as far forward as we do in the poll to 2024 in the next presidential election. Uh, We obviously break down uh, where Biden is unpopular, which is almost everywhere in terms of domestic policy, foreign policy, Ukraine, Russia, all of that. Um, There is just really no good news for them. The only caveat, the only uh, ray of light uh, on this very, very dark horizon for the Democrats and for Biden himself is that it is April. It's not the first week of November. So calendar wise this time but there's very little if anything in the polling that we've done i think others have done to indicate where the democrats claw back what at the moment appears to be a pretty insurmountable republican lead and patrick just for our viewers sort of talk us through the starting point at the moment obviously we have a democrat in the white house sure Uh, i mean i always look at it as the four sort of institutions you've got the supreme court which is you know, I wouldn't go as far as say political, but it's not a wholly independent judiciary. There's politics involved in the Supreme Court. That's uh, now conservative leaning after Donald Trump's appointments. We've obviously got a Democrat in the White House, and then you've got the House of Representatives and the Senate. Talk us through the present balance there, because on the face of it, at the moment, Joe Biden and the Democrats have got pretty much everything they could wish for, with the exception of the Supreme Court, right? 
Yes, the good news the past 15 months for the Democrats and Biden is that they've been able to largely set their own course and follow through. The reasons for that are twofold. The Senate is actually tied 50-50, but the vice president can break any, will break any tie in the Senate. And that means Kamala Harris has been breaking ties in favor of the Democrats' uh, proposals. In the House, it's 435 congressmen and women, so that's the max at all times. Um, the Democrats have a very small majority, right? They're only 10, they're only 10 seats up, which means that um, it can be tough to get some of the legislation through, although they've done pretty well on that front. Uh, and the Republicans only need a net gain of six to win back the House. And the reason I stress that is that historically, in the, for any president's first term, there are a few exceptions where the president's party didn't lose seats, often a lot of seats, in the, in the following the subsequent midterm election. So the Democrats start with history against them. And then all a lot, a lot of other factors, including the issue uh, data in our poll and others that suggest that it's, you know, it's going to be a heavy lift. That's really, really interesting. And what I was fascinated about, because I want to get into some of the economic issues that you can help our viewers and listeners with, Patrick, when, when you ask folk about the, uh, what are the most important issues that they're, that they're facing, and this is for all voters, not, not um, necessarily Republican-leaning, Democrat-leaning, all voters, independents as well. Inflation, fully 25%. Economy and jobs, another 16%. Crime at 15%. Education, which has become a kind of culture war battleground with things like critical race theory at 14 percent, uh, COVID all the way down at 10 percent and Ukraine and Russia even below that at 8 percent. So this is fascinating for the Institute of Economic Affairs because it looks to me as if economic issues are what is driving worries, concerns and perhaps voter intention at the moment. Would that be a fair analysis? It is a fair analysis. Uh, the midterms this year are shaping up as a pocket book election. It's not just about economic issues, but it is primarily about them. And when that's the case, it usually means that folks don't think things are going well. Inflation isn't the number one issue if inflation is low, right? It hasn't been the number one issue for, for decades in most Western countries, but it is the number one issue followed by the economy more generally and jobs as you indicated. Uh, Biden's presidency is hitting hard. Uh, in, in, the, in the wallets and the bank accounts and the kitchen tables, banging on the kitchen tables of American voters. And that is what they are focused upon. And they do not believe that what has been delivered over the past 15 months has been helpful. In fact, they think it's been it's the exact opposite, quite unhelpful. And so you have, you have two groups here. This applies to the economic issues, but more broadly as well. You have all those Republicans and Trump voters uh, who, who started out thinking Biden would be a failure, and they think so far he's confirmed their, their fears and suspicions. Then you have a minority of those who voted for Biden, but a significant minority who are experiencing buyer's remorse. They are either underwhelmed by what they've, they, they've witnessed so far, or they're in outright opposition to it uh, and fear for the worst. So you put those two groups together, and that's how you end up within our poll, a 10-point lead for the Republicans and Biden's approval um, in, you know, along those same lines or disapproval along those same lines. So there's a new coalition in America, at least temporarily, of Republicans and Trump voters, independents um, who sided slightly with Biden last time, but are going heavily the other way now, and some now disaffected, underwhelmed Democrats. Now, help me with this as well, Patrick. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I think the 
the, the broad assumption on this side of the pond, uh, looking at Joe Biden, not just becoming president, but his history over you know, his, his lengthy political career, would be that we sort of assumed he was a middle of the road Democrat, a kind of yeah. Clinton Democrat. Yeah, he might be from the centre left party, but, you know, he's, you know, got market orientations and the rest of it. He's not going to go on some crazy spending splurge or huge hiked regulations or tax rises. But Biden in action actually has been way further to the left than that historical analysis would have uh, led one to believe. Am I right? That is actually been shifted several degrees oh, yes. in a statist direction rather than towards the center ground. No question about that. I mean, there's a couple of couple of reasons for that. One is Biden's history as uh, as a politician, principally as a senator, uh, back to the early 1970s. Joe Biden has always been a, a machine politician, a party guy. He's never been an ideas guy, right? So, and and as an ambitious young senator. He, did, he decided then and continued throughout his career to really identify where the party was moving or where it was and then where it might be moving at any given time and try to be, if not front and center, but certainly part of that group. So that's why you get all these quotes from the 70s where he sounds like a Southern conservative Democrat, because there were a lot of Southern conservative Democrats at that time. And he that's where the party was, even though it was shifting away from that. You know, you get to the 90s or by the, the next decade, decade ago, when Obama chose him um, as uh, vice president and his senatorial record wasn't the most liberal, but it was pretty darn liberal by American standards. Then you get to the 2020 campaign. He wants to be president as he has done all his career, but he's not really particularly sure why in terms of a policy program. They campaign without really any platform except we'll fix COVID and we're not Trump. But what's happening the whole time is the left of the party is becoming not any more numerous in terms of the activists and the donors and, and, the, and the, the congressmen and women themselves. But that's where the intellectual juice and firepower is, right? So there's this left wing, most left wing program that ever, I'm saying, would have been proposed to the American people because it wasn't really out there, that's sitting on the shelf. Biden comes in. He doesn't have a plan. He's just glad it's ended up the way it has. And guess what? all the powers that be in his party congressionally and his White House advisors say, well, look, we've got this fantastic new platform that you can just, we can just start implementing. Now we control Congress. You can, you know, you can sign all this legislation and it's going to be fantastic. And so that's how you get Biden is endorsing rubber stump stamping a program that he hasn't been a part of developing. He just doesn't really care enough either way. It could have been a more moderate program and he'd have been fine with that too. But and, and tell me what the features of the, the plan are then. So we're using in general terms sure. that, that perhaps uh, uh, Joe Biden's always been looking for the center of gravity within his own party. Yeah. And if that's moved to the left, he's moved to the left with it. That's often what, you know, cunning tactical politicians do. Mm -hmm. But what's the nature of it? Is it uh, again, give our viewers on both sides of the pond and indeed all over the world. What, what is it? Massive government spending, money yeah, printing, tax hikes it, on the rich, heavy regulation. What's, what's the content? It's big government on steroids. Um, there's sort of two parts to it. The first part uh, early last year really inherited and ran, ran with or ran away with what had happened in 2020 in America, as in most Western countries, where one of the responses to COVID, because the, the economy was shut down, the government just started printing and spending money like, like crazy, right? Uh, and so the Biden approach is, was to maintain that, in fact, increase that. 
they maintained the country was in as bad a shape as it had been, because after all, it had all been under Trump, and they could rescue the country, get the economy back, the old-fashioned way of, of printing money and giving it to people, giving it to businesses, investing, all that sort of stuff. What they've added to that, uh, is, which is really the, the true program, is a massive, quote-unquote, infrastructure plan. I mean, there's no question, and Trump argued this throughout his presidency, even as a candidate back in 2016, that American infrastructure is not exactly first world in many cases. So the, then there's the argument, obviously, is it privately funded? Is it publicly funded? Is it a hybrid? All of that. That was never resolved under Trump. And of course, the Biden Democrats come along and they answer that question very easily. We need to spend as much money as we possibly can. And it doesn't actually have to be on physical infrastructure. So the infrastructure program that's now being implemented at the cost of trillions, only about 10% of it is on what the average person would think of as infrastructure, roads and bridges and all that. It's economic infrastructure, as it's described, which means any program the government chooses to fund. And then what they've done more recently is they've pushed and to some extent been able to get through a program is just really, really old fashioned tax and spending. OK, so they've dressed it up. So there's a huge amount of money that's uh, allegedly uh, to combat climate change, that, 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 that sort of Green New Deal. There's a lot of that stuff in it, but it's but it's good old fashioned. Um, let's, you know, let's throw money at everything. If it doesn't move, we throw more money at it. We're going to tax like crazy because we've got to somehow recoup some of this. So of course, it's all taxing. Well, officially, it's all taxing the wealthy because you can't find enough money there. So they're now realizing and, and starting to admit they have to pretty much tax everybody. Uh, so you've got you know, debt through the roof. You've got higher and higher deficits. And what they have brought back, what they brought back immediately, because a lot of this stuff is done through executive order of the president, uh, is they brought back the, the regulatory state that Clinton and then Obama especially had really ramped up. But to, to Trump's eternal credit, one of his key successes was he was able to halt the growth of the regulatory state and in, in a number of areas, to be fair, actually bring it back to a more sane, common sense, cost benefit approach. Um, that's all out the window. Uh, we are regulating anything we possibly can because like liberals in the American context, the lefties anywhere, they know they need business to do well enough to fund, you know, to employ people and to fund the projects they want funded. But business is fundamentally to them, the default position is business isn't, it's kind of iffy, you know, it's just not really on side, is it? They don't have you know, the values are wrong and we just really wish it didn't have to be this way. So we're going to make sure we control them as far as much as we can. So that's happening. And all of these things put together now exacerbated, um, some of us would argue because of the, the unintended consequences of all the sanctions on Russia and all of that. Um, you, you have inflation, you have spiking gas, petrol prices, gas prices, and all of this is hitting home to the average American. This is really, really interesting. And uh, Patrick, I want to come on to foreign policy and the, and the dominant personality of, of Donald Trump in a moment as well. But help us, Patrick, with your experience in polling, because I've gone through all of the, uh, the fascinating figures um, that you present here. Which one should one be looking at if you were trying to project a year or two into the future? Um, I've often heard British pollsters saying, don't worry so much about the snapshot on party voting intention today. Look at the approval ratings of the leaders, for example. 
Uh, approval ratings for American presidents, by the way, tend to be better than approval ratings for British prime ministers, right? It's very common for British prime ministers to be in the negative, uh, I think less common over there. But the fascinating um, uh, finding in, in your poll, Patrick, about America's direction. Is America on the right track or the wrong track? 28% say the right track, 70% say the wrong track. Is that the sort of underlying metric uh, that we should be looking at to try and judge where America might go over the course of not just to this November, but looking ahead to who the next president of the United States might be? Or is it uh, President Biden's approval rating? Or is it the likely outcome in the congressional races this November? What should we be looking at if we want a longer term vision of where American politics is going? Well, as you suggest, Mark, the, the horse race, the congressional horse race is interesting, important, but it isn't necessarily the best predictor. Uh, but presidential approval ratings are quite good predictors of presidential outcomes, or at least the vote share for the president himself. Uh, and I would take that to give more weight to that than the congressional horse race. Um, the, issue, the issue positions, um, that dynamic, uh, is certainly important, but you've really answered you know, your own question in that the direction of the country, the right track, run, run track question and answers is the one that if you had to take one piece of data out of our poll and, and then guess the rest, you'd be best served by that. Because when you have 70% of the country saying that the country is on the wrong track, this far into a presidency, it means that overwhelmingly people are not impressed, right? And the risk of repeating myself, it means that not only did everyone who voted against Biden, voted for Trump, do they have that view, but you're talking about, you know, two, uh, 40% of those who voted for Biden think the country's on the wrong track, right? Now they thought, those folks thought the country's on the wrong track before, but they thought their, their opinion would change by now, but it hasn't. In, in fact, there's an intensity to this wrong track sentiment. So everything really flows from that. That means that Biden cannot uh, be thought highly of, which he isn't. It means that he and the Democrats lose on nearly all of these important issue questions, which they do. Um, and it means that both the congressional race skews Republican. And if you go as far uh, into the future is two and a half years. You look at the presidential election in 2024. It means that the Democrats are already starting uh, behind the Republicans. So a generic Republican is looking strong. Uh, if it's Trump, as it may well be, he's also looking strong, stronger than people might have expected. And none of the obvious Democratic candidates appear to be in good shape. And that's not simply because, but largely because the big picture question of how's the country doing overwhelmingly, almost three in four voters give, give a thumbs down to that question. I just want to touch on foreign policy, not an area that the IEA typically engages in, but again, some fascinating data from the polls. I want to ask you whether America's becoming more isolationist over recent years. I mean, I think Donald Trump claims for himself, I think accurately, he's the only president in the modern era who hasn't got involved in some uh, foreign war or escapade. Um, the Ukraine and the Russia scenario comes very low on what Americans are worried about. I think I was saying it's 8% consider that to be the most topical issue. But obviously, the headline grabber is asking people which would be the better scenario for America. Uh, would it be that Vladimir Putin loses power in Russia, or would it be that Joe Biden loses power in the USA? 
And by a pretty hefty margin of 9%, 52 to 43, Americans saying they care more about Biden losing power in America than Putin losing power in Russia. I think that will come as a pretty huge surprise to uh, people outside of the United States of America. Is the USA, I don't mean this in a pejorative fashion, becoming a bit more inward looking, less interested in what's happening beyond its borders, more interesting in it being uh, the land of the free, the home of the brave and a place where you can live the American dream, whatever's happening in every other corner of the globe? Well, the truth of it is, Mark, that for most of the time, historically, uh, Americans uh, have been non-interventionists or isolationists, depending on how you like to define it. Um, it's their leadership which has led them abroad uh, for good or for ill. And on the Democratic side, you've had this sort of liberal interventionism, which has tended to be more driven by promoting democracy, human rights, that sort of thing. Um, and on the Republican side, more the, certainly more recently, the, the neoconservative George W. Bush style regime change, spread democracy, old school Republican interventionism, more Reagan-esque Cold War stand up to the Soviet Union. Now, at times, the public has been with their president on, on, a, on one of those fronts, um, at least temporarily. Um, but Donald Trump was the first president, as you suggest, in some time, who didn't take that view that America should automatically be involved everywhere because it served not only the world's interests, but America's interests. He as is known, America first. If it works for America, that's great. If it doesn't, we're not really that interested. And his foreign policies flowed from that. So you get to Biden, who's bringing back the Obama, Clinton-esque uh, liberal interventionism. And Democrats have never been afraid to uh, you know, involve the military, all of that, to, be, to get right in there if they think the cause is worthwhile. And no doubt we would be doing more as a country if the politics allowed it, but, but, but they don't. And so what you end up with, with these, the answers to these Russia-Ukraine questions is, and the one that you've highlighted that's being highlighted, our most provocative question, which gives the surprising answer. What it tells you is that it, it's Americans do not care for Putin. They've never heard anything but bad things about him for over 20 years. And they would like to see him gone from power. Although I think a fair number of them recognize, you know, it's the old thing, you don't wish for something too hard, you might, might just get it. Nobody's really sure what might follow and it might be worse than him. It's not that they care for Putin, like what's happening in Ukraine, it's that they don't think it's important enough to get really wound up about. So that's why, as you indicated, the Russia-Ukraine issue is there on the board, but it's low down. It's mm -hmm. not one or two, right? The Democrats and Biden have pitched their tent. They think their, their political recovery, their electoral recovery comes from their strong position on Ukraine and opposing Putin. They're gonna make the campaign all about opposition to Putin, which may individually persuade Americans that they're correct on that policy, although that's somewhat in doubt at the moment. But what it's not going to do is make them think more highly of Biden or the Democrats, because as we've already discussed, the issues that are important are the pocketbook issues. And in addition to that, the skyrocketing crime over the last couple of years, particularly in most major cities, and the educational issue, and where education, I think, is worth mentioning, is that it's the first time in a long time that Republicans have a lead on that issue. Because as in most Western countries, healthcare, education, environment, those are things that always skew to the more left-wing party. But as you touched on, I think, in your introduction, Mark, 
It's the fact that this education is less now about should we be have charter schools, should we have privately funded this, that, and the other. It's now very much the discussion, the public debate is about the culture wars and the wokeism, uh, the critical race uh, theory, the trans transgenderism education, all of this stuff, which has awakened a lot of ordinary folks, parents, my, most obviously, to what is, has been going on and what is and may be going on in their kids' schools. And that is doing one very interesting thing the Democrats didn't count on. And that is, that is moving, at least temporarily, for these midterm elections. A, a good number of those white, uh, well-educated, middle-class suburban women who'd always voted Republican until Trump, who couldn't bear Trump, voted for Biden. They would love to vote Republican again if it wasn't Trump as the candidate. But in the midterm, they don't have to worry about Trump. And they are terrified of, and uh, think it's abhorrent what's going on in their kids' schools or their grandkids' schools. And so they're looking at the Democrats. So between economy and education, Biden's foreign policy just isn't getting a hearing, or at least not one that, that's going to move the needle. Really interesting. I, I want to come on to uh, Trump and, and have your thoughts there. You, you've polled um, Donald Trump against a, a range of possible Democrat candidates. Were that to be... Uh, the matchup for the presidential race in 2024. You find that uh, snapshot at the moment, he'd beat Biden by 5%, 48 to 43. If uh, Vice President Kamala Harris were the candidate, you find that Donald Trump would win by a full 10%, 39, 49 to 39 on your poll. And were Hillary Clinton to come back for the rematch of the 2016 presidential election, you find Trump winning in the popular vote 49 to 42. And I guess it's worth underlining because of the nature of the Electoral College, actually the Republicans, the Republican candidate pro probably doesn't need to win the popular vote because the smaller states tend to uh, edge in the red direction. That puts Trump, you know, winning the presidency on that snapshot against those likely candidates. But I'm interested in whether you think it's likely that Donald Trump will indeed be the Republican candidate. You model him against three possible Democrats. Is Donald Trump going to come back? Is he going to be the first man since Grover Cleveland to be serve as president, but in two non-consecutive terms? Is that a done deal? And we're now just actually asking the strange question, who the Democrat candidate will be? Because usually an incumbent president yeah. after the first yeah. term, you know that. And there's a mm -hmm. huge open race on the other side of the ledger. Yeah, it does seem counterintuitive, doesn't it? But that's where we are today. I mean, as of right now, Trump wants to run again, plans to run again although it depends who you ask, to what extent his plans are in, in motion. So the reason we ask about Trump is because it appears, you know, there's no evidence that he's not running. If he runs, there's also no other anecdotal or empirical evidence that he won't win the nomination. Obviously something can happen in the next couple of years, but as of right now, the nomination is his, if it's his for the taking. So we go with him. Uh, we, we, you, you, you could go with, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who wants to be president, but has said um, emphatically that he won't run if Trump is running, won't run for the nomination. And there are other, obviously, potential uh, folks who will definitely run if Trump isn't running. But at the moment, I think that's a sort of a waste of time uh, until, we, until we know Trump's decision. Uh, so we go with Trump. And this shows you how public sentiment has shifted. Um, at least among that sort of 10, 20 percent who are, who are persuadable, movable. Uh, so you have now so many people saying to themselves, 
you know, I never liked Trump. I may be, I voted for him once, maybe I voted for him twice, but I kind of relieved initially that he was gone. All that, all that madness, all that sort of radical stuff, all that tweeting and a sort of great sort of exhale. So Biden was doing okay at first. But yeah, today- one of, one of my friends uh, from America said to me that although he's not particularly fond of Joe Biden, at least he doesn't have to think about what the president's doing morning, noon and night, where it was, where it was Donald Trump, you, right. you heard exactly. of little else, right? That's right. Um, now it's a question of can we divine what on earth the president is doing? Is he doing anything, right? Uh, so the, uh, so, so, so um, people are now saying to themselves, the same things they thought about Trump before, but, and it's a huge but, but things seem so much worse now, right? It was a couple of months ago, uh, Biden's chief of staff was on television. And he said, look, you know, um, everything in the country is better than it was a year ago. And that of course is the, whatever, whatever um, accuracy there may be in any or all of that comment, that statement, the popular perception is that that is the complete opposite of the case, right? Especially on economic stuff. Um, so there's, as I say, buyer's remorse, a sense of being incredibly underwhelmed by the Biden presidency. And it's, it's, it's two things. It's, it's the fact that so much seems to be going wrong, foreign and domestic, because the Afghanistan debacle is, is an important issue for, for some folks. But it's the fact that the adults that were self-advertised put the adults back in charge. What a relief. We've got this A-team back, all these super bright people. They've proven themselves or are perceived to have proven themselves to be so incredibly incompetent it's not just a, we don't like their policies for ideological reasons, or we don't think they're working, is that they've lost, people have lost faith in the Biden presidency to be able to figure anything out, right? So now we're looking at probably Trump against a Democrat. It's a Democrat because the plan always all along on the Democratic side was, we get in with Biden because he's inoffensive and it's, he's not Trump and that'll be fine. And however you think it turned out and why it's another way it did, that's what happened. So Biden was going to have a successful presidency and either he wasn't going to run again, but he might even turn it over to Kamala Harris before the four years are up and she would be this fresh, attractive face and the way we go to another term and she can start her presidency. But of course, it hasn't worked out that way. Now there's no chance Biden runs again. But for all the bad, all the worst reasons. So the question is now: Do they dump him right after the midterms because it's going to be such a disaster and give her two years? But she's proven to be so unpopular; she's less popular than him. Hence, she does worse against Trump than Biden does. The most unpopular president in polling history at the moment. And so, if not Kamala, if not Joe, who? Well, there's a lady waiting in the wings who just cannot wait to have another crack at Donald Trump, and that's Hillary Clinton. So she's now making all the noises, talking to all the, it's no coincidence that the Clinton Foundation is up and running again and receiving donations, right? It's not just because Ukraine's in the news, although some would argue that's part of it. So we could be looking at 2024 being a replay of 2016 with Clinton and Trump. If it's now, she doesn't do very well in the polls either at the moment against Trump. And with her, it's hard to see how she persuades anyone there's anything different, any more reason to love her, any less more reason to hate her than, than several years ago. So can they come up with somebody else? And that's why there's so much attention paid in democratic circles. Can we persuade Michelle Obama to run? That's why the likes of Meghan Markle are thinking, well, if Donald Trump can be president and maybe Oprah could be president, why not me? You know, it's, 
it, it's wide open on the Democratic side, which, as you say, is the last thing anybody expected at this point. After one term. Patrick, I want to finish with this. So thank you so much for talking us through what the public attitudes appear to be on the other side of the pond. Obviously, any institute interested in public policy or economics needs to keep an eye on what people's attitudes are, how they're reacting to different policies. We're not uh, you know, involved in the elections game as a, as, as a think tank, but we're involved in the public policy game. What should free marketeers um, uh, using liberal in the English sense of classical liberal rather than the American sense be hoping for if you want America to move in the most market direction possible, in the least state intervention uh, direction possible, if you want people to control more of their own money, have a, a slightly lighter regulatory state. What should we be willing for, even though we're uh, take no, uh, the IA right. obviously takes no view in any particular race, but which side of the ledger should we be looking at? Well, right now, there's, sort of, there's good news and bad or uncertain news for free market folks looking either within the country or from externally. The good news is that the, the, the status big government plan, uh, as unfolded so far, is failing spe in spectacular fashion. And people are feeling that and realizing that and starting to process that. So the, the support uh, for doing more of the same is falling away and falling away quite quickly. So that's really good news. And of course, that's, it's a democratic plan with very little Republican support, if any. So they are identified, self-identified as those folks with the, with, who have failed or are failing miserably. So that's good news in the sense you can say, well, let's forget about them. And the public is receptive, potentially receptive to a different approach. The bad news or the uncertain news is they haven't received that yet, right? Um, the Republicans in electoral political terms have been smart. They just stayed out of their own way, which they don't always do, right? They, they, they're renowned for snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I mean, it's just the way they, they sadly operate from their perspective. Um, they may just carry on this way. And if they take Congress as they probably will, who knows what they'll do? Just a little bit more moderate from what the Democrats have been doing? Or will they actually attempt to show a different side and do the more limited government, let people you know, run their own lives thing, which I, which I think there's a, there's a huge market for, but we just, we just don't know what they will do. So the best one can hope for, I think, is that the Republicans are successful in the midterms, but that they learn the right lesson, that it wasn't just bad messaging on the Democratic side, it wasn't just our turn. There actually was a fundamental problem with the Democratic prescriptions uh, not because they were put forward by Democrats, but because they were left-wing prescriptions that you can just be guaranteed fail wherever they're tried and applied. So will the debt Republicans learn the correct lessons of the midterms, you know, to be decided? Uh, and of course, immediately after the morning after the midterms, the next presidential election will start. And on the Republican side, if it's Trump, you're going to you're going to immediately hear about some things that are attractive to free market people, but you're also going to hear some things that sound a bit more big government, right? Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a populist mix uh, synthesis. Um, but if this if there are other candidates, whether they're against Trump or instead of Trump, they might they might learn the lessons. They might be a little more overtly explicitly free market. But it is at risk of evading a, a sort of definitive answer. It is all to be decided because we're talking after all about politicians. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us to, uh, to talk through your fascinating polling uh, results. As I said, we'll, we'll link to those in the 
show notes below so you can see all of the uh, 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 all of the coverage it's it's received fascinating to hear from you patrick thanks so much always a great interest to, to have you on the iea london youtube channel navigating uh, our way through what you say is a very uncertain thing and you say we've got to keep our eyes on all of this you know we'll have you back close to november to see what you think the point is then and then again and again and again through this protracted process of caucuses and primaries never stops the election process no no it's in the united uh, states of america it's like it's like the football season it never ends right you almost <laughs> think it was a you almost think it was a cottage industry and people were making money off it, wouldn't you? The way it never ends. <laughs> well, there you I mean, go. That, There's that, always incentive. Yeah, that would be cynical of me, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, Mark, Mark, thanks for the time, the conversation, Mark. Great pleasure. Um, I hope provided some information that's worthwhile to your audience and look forward to our next chat. Patrick, it's been great to have you with us. Thanks so much. I hope you've enjoyed this, watching this broadcast. Uh, please make sure, if you're not yet, that you are subscribed to the IEA London YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. If you've got a few pennies spare and you're willing to become an IA online patron, you'll find details of that in the show notes below. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Stay safe, stay free, over and out.